This is Monocle's House View coming up today. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who've gotten short into the stick over and over. That's been the fight of my life and it will continue. Senator Elizabeth Warren quits the race for the Democratic nomination, prompting the question, what more do Americans want in a first female president? Later in the show, Monocle staff will look at how national governments and news outlets are responding to the coronavirus crisis. We'll have our weekly reflection on what we've actually learned this week, and Monocle's Eurovision desk chief will join us for a listen to some of the early showing contenders for this year's title. I'm Andrew Muller, Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to Monocle's House View. Now, with all due respect to the ongoing campaign of Tulsi Gabbard, which is to say none, the race to become the Democratic Party's nominee for President of the United States is down to two men, former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who between them have a combined age reaching back to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The last major contender to abandon the fray was Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who appeared abundantly qualified in every respect, bar her difficulty convincing voters who either don't like the idea of a female president at all or who worry that a decisive number of their fellow citizens might have such concerns. Well, earlier I spoke to Amy Pope, former Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to President Barack Obama, now with the US and the Americas program at Chatham House. Some of her positions were very difficult for conservative Democrats. For example, her position on health care, you know, she initially adopted sort of a Medicare for all, which she then modified a bit. But that's the kind of issue that really strikes at the heart of the sort of middle of the road voter. They don't want to give up their existing health care plans. They like them. They mostly want to make sure that things like prescription drugs are more affordable and that that healthcare providers can't discriminate against them if they have a pre-existing condition. But they don't necessarily want the government to take over all of healthcare. And so that's what we heard consistently from voters when she took that position, particularly in places like Michigan, in Wisconsin, the the states that are really going to matter. Uh, That was Amy Pope speaking to me earlier. I'm joined now with more by Monocle's affairs editor, Chris Chermack, and by Monocle 24's Ben Ryland. Uh, Chris, first of all, where did it go wrong for Elizabeth Warren? I mean, if if you were going to construct a theoretical first female president of the United States, she pretty much looked like it, didn't she? Uh, I think that's true to a degree that she definitely looked like it. I would... um... I would focus actually on a quote from her uh, concession speech, if you will. Um, she There were two things that she focused on. I think she summed them up very well. Um, and this is, and I quote, she said, I was told at the beginning of this whole undertaking that there are two lanes, a progressive lane that Bernie Sanders is the incumbent for and a moderate lane that Joe Biden is the incumbent for. And there's no room for anyone else in this. I thought that wasn't right, but evidently I was wrong. <laughs> Um, And I just thought that was quite telling. And I think it does say something about this race that she thought and for a while was successful in finding this middle ground between the two. But she never was quite able to define which of them she was on. For a while that was working and she was actually leading in the polls. Um, But I do get this feeling that at the end of the day, there were many voters that 
perhaps went for their own safer choice, if you will, whether that was Joe Biden for the moderates or uh, Bernie Sanders for the progressive wing of the party. And she was sort of crowded out in that in a quite a surprising, quite uh, like drastic way, I would say, in, in, in the way that it, it just it just happened quite quickly. Um, and to your point, I do, you know, she also did obviously comment on sexism in the race. And she had this this great quote along those lines as well, saying, um, if I say, if I were to say that sexism was involved, I'd be called a whiner. If I don't say that sexism involve, is involved, about a bazillion women will say, what planet do you live on? So she is caught in, in a couple of very difficult dynamics in this race. Uh, ben, it's a, it's a question or it's a, it's a point that has been raised by a few people in trying to figure out why Senator Warren couldn't find as much ground as you would think there was in between uh, Biden and Sanders. And it's this, it's this idea of... Democratic voters, whether consciously or subconsciously, are now gravitating towards what they see as a safe option in this of all elections, where obviously the priority is getting Donald Trump out of the White House. Might she have had a better chance were the Democrats, for example, running against President Mitt Romney, a, if you will, normal Republican? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And you only need to hear a lot of uh, the news reports where journalists have gone out and spoken to a, a lot of Democratic uh, voters who are going to be voting and are, are voting in the in the Democratic primaries and, and caucuses and so on. So many of them will say privately, look, yes, I really do like Elizabeth Warren. I really do like Pete Buttigieg perhaps as well. Uh, but I'm gravitating towards someone who is going to be able to take on Trump because this is an unusual time. So many people are saying exactly the same the same thing. So, you know, I think Amy started off your Amy Pope started off your interview today on, on the briefing uh, with uh, uh, by saying that this is not an ordinary primary. And I think that is what most people are feeling right now, that we are in such historically unusual times that this is not really about who we're voting as president. It's about who we are voting to beat Donald Trump. And that is a sad state of affairs. But I think a lot of people who are uh, politically and emotionally invested in everything that the Democrats stand for, that that is where they're at right now. They're, this is not just another election. Uh, Chris, there has been inevitably and understandably uh, an amount of chatter already about Elizabeth Warren as a vice presidential candidate. Joe Biden seems not to be all that keen on that idea. He made a reference to, you know, needing her in the Senate, which seems to suggest that if Biden gets the nomination, she will not be the nominee, the, the running mate. But in this of all elections, and we'll try to rise above making obvious jokes about the age of the two contenders, though there are a couple of those obvious jokes coming up later in the show, um, <laughs> the vice presidential pick really matters this time, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think it does matter. And uh, I do wonder if that is part of Joe Biden's calculation. I think he faces a difficult choice. Um, and perhaps uh, as much as Elizabeth Warren would work in a, in a couple of ways, uh, being bringing gender balance to the ticket and also somebody who's a bit more progressive, at the same time, it might not look good to pick, frankly, two people in their 70s to run on the ticket. So I do wonder uh, if that is part of his calculation or if it's just that, uh, as he says, he wants her in the Senate, which will be very important. I think it's critical to have down-ballot candidates. The, the, you know, it's, I think the, the Democrats definitely want to maintain, uh, to even get a majority potentially in the Senate. So I think, I think one shouldn't 
not give credence to that point. No, I, I think Chris is onto something there because when you think about how American politics works, yes, when we're voting in elections, the vice presidential candidate means a lot. You've got this joint ticket and they end up becoming this joint brand later down the line, almost like morning television hosts where they're smiling and happy and traveling <laughs> all over the country. But then once the serious part of governing starts to happen... That's when you realise, oh, the VP kind of just sits in their office, not doing a whole lot. It's, it's, it's a melancholy job. I recall years ago interviewing former Vice President Al Gore, who made frequent clanging reference throughout our conversation to what he described as the Clinton-Gore administration. And I couldn't find it in myself to say out loud, I bet Bill Clinton doesn't call it that, does he? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, though, it's far less melancholic, though, than it used to be, I have to say. That's the only thing I'd add to that, to be fair. When you've looked at Dick Cheney and then Joe Biden himself was in incredibly powerful as vice president. And so we're I seeing think right now with Mike Pence taking the lead with the And we're seeing this with Mike Pence as well, exactly. Yeah. So I do think it's changed and that the dynamic has become more important than it used to be. So you could make an argument that maybe that's also why just Joe but Biden you know who and is more Elizabeth important Warren right wouldn't now. click. The uh, Senate Majority Leader. I mean, uh, as we see with, especially when the uh, when the impeachment was happening, that is really who is the most important when it comes to the actual politics. So, if we were to see a hypothetical Senate Majority Leader, Elizabeth Warren, perhaps that is where Joe Biden's thinking is. I shall leave this conversation with the thoughts of the 28th Vice President of the United States, uh, Thomas Marshall, who once said that once there were two brothers, one ran away to sea, the other was elected Vice President of the United States. Nothing was heard from either of them ever again. Uh, Chris Chermack and Ben Ryland, thank you both for joining us. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, joined now by Ben Ryland, Marcus Hippie and Tom Edwards. The global outbreak of the coronavirus COVID-19 presents governments with a number of challenges, not the least of which is trying to stop the reaction to the problem from becoming a bigger problem than the problem. In Australia, one politician has taken a tentative stand. In the face of bewildering panic buying of toilet paper, Dan Andrews, Premier of the country's second best state, Victoria, tweeted, I know people are concerned and I don't want this to come across as insensitive in any way, but it's worth remembering that there's a difference between being prepared and panicking. Um, Tom, are we yet figuring out where that line is? Uh, Not very effectively, Andrew, and I'm going to draw on a news source for you. Please do. uh, From my favourite magazine, Private Eye. Um, MD, who... You mean your second favourite magazine, (laughs) Yes, I'm sorry, of course. Uh, MD, who writes under that uh, nom de plume, it's Dr Phil Hammond, who's an excellent chronicler of, well, often medical malfeasance. Um, He's also good asking big questions. And the simple... uh, question that he poses in the latest edition of the magazine is does fear of the virus cause more harm than the virus itself and then he goes on very pithily quickly and effectively um, to answer uh, very much in the uh, affirmative Uh, at the heart of what he says is that we've been wrestling with flu we always do flu kills people this will kill people there are simple measures to mitigate the risk um, but the same uh, demographics are uh, more vulnerable. And the drivers behind their vulnerability are broadly the same in the same places, whether you're talking about seasonal influenza or coronavirus. And if you're serious about trying to galvanise government, spend money to address the problem, you address those challenges which are of the nature of smoking, uh, pollution, uh, poverty more broadly. Those are the things that drive whether or not a larger or smaller number of people will perish and he makes the point that the rest of us should and I paraphrase slightly realise that we're all going to 
die one day, wash our hands and get on with business. Uh, ben, the reaction that I alluded to in our home country is is both bewildering and, and faintly embarrassing. The, the strange stripping bare of toilet paper shelves in particular, does it strike you as it strikes me as not just doubly but triply and exponentially weird given that within very recent memory, Australians have come through an actual obvious big deal crisis, the enormous bushfires uh, of this this Australian summer, with by and large commendably stoic forbearance. Uh, 60 cases of COVID-19 now confirmed in Australia and people are losing their minds. People are losing their minds and I think you might be onto something because I sensed a bit of irritation in Daniel Andrews's tone actually because uh, he was very much at the front of Australia's response to the the bushfire crisis while it was at its peak. There were lots of fires, uh, deadly fires happening in Victoria and he really took the lead and he got lots of plaudits for this, you know. Um, And I think that I did, I really did sense that he was getting a bit pissed off with some of his own voters because the people in Australia have been going a a bit mad. My sister, uh, who who obviously lives in Australia, she uh, received an email from one of the major supermarket chains just trying to calm people down about all of the shortages of toilet paper. And it actually had a listing. It went through the listings of all the different toilet paper makers and where the toilet paper is made um, and and what schedule those toilet paper factories are on, 24 hours a day at the Kleenex factory in Queensland, for example. It, it just got a bit absurd, didn't it? Um, so yeah, I I do wonder about that. But um, look, I I I think it's baffling that this toilet paper is at the at the front of people's minds in Australia. Because if it were me, I'd be stocking up on some maybe some tinned foods and and some and some pasta. But as Daniel Andrews said further down in his his uh, Twitter storm at some of the uh, more idiotic people in Australia, there there is plenty of food and toilet paper to go around if we all just stay calm and buy what we need when we need it as usual. Panic buying just causes more panic, and that is the last thing we need right now, especially for people who already struggle to get to the shops or afford groceries. In other words, all of this panic has actually created other problems that we didn't have before. I would be fascinated to read the Premier's drafts folder because I, I think the probably the original take on the back half of that tweet when he gets across he gets up to I don't want this to come across as an insensitive in any way, but I reckon there were probably a couple of slightly riper earlier drafts rich with the Australian colloquial lexicon, or at least I like to think so. Um, Marcus, we, we have invited you here as a representative of what I think are probably stereotypically regarded as the least flappable people on earth, um, which is, of course, the Finns. Uh, what does it look like when Finns panic? Well, actually, I've been trying to follow what's going on in my home country now, and I don't sense any feeling of panic over there. Maybe the reason is that Finland is not a particularly densely populated nation. Things like this, like this virus, you can easily control them because there aren't many occasions where you would have loads of people in the same place. So there's no really panic <laughs> mood over there. And let's now remember no, no, that nobody Finland, ever leaves their houses anyway. And right? I guess I guess we also kind of trust our authorities and and our leaders and our health officials have been saying that there is not much to worry about at the moment, 15 confirmed cases. And also, luckily, we have a huge paper industry. So I don't think Finland... (laughs) Finland is one of the very last countries that will ever run out of toilet paper. As a matter of fact, just uh, as a quick anecdote, quite often you have young people trying to sell you toilet paper because when you have kind of sports clubs and you've got 14, 13-year-old kids raising funds for their school trips, what they do is to order 
loads of toilet paper from the manufacturers, and then they try to sell them to all their relatives. Even I found myself so, so you, once with about 300 rolls of toilet so, paper so you when my cousin been, wanted you to get some money been, for his travels. You people have been stockpiling it for years. I, I guess you can see it that Tom, way I, as well. I, I say we strike now while Finland is weak. Well, it's interesting. I think that both Marcus and Ben make very shrewd points. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Marcus said, which was particularly interesting, was that people tend to trust the pronouncements of government. And one of the things that Ben said, which struck me, was that, you know, by panicking, you cause problems that weren't there before. And if I go back to where I began and what Dr. Phil's been writing about, he's saying the problem isn't even the virus per se. It's the reaction to the virus. If we're all a bit calmer, if we're a bit patient, if we just allow this thing to follow its natural course, institutions like the National Health Service will be able to respond and flex and actually even if it starts to warm up a bit, it becomes easier to manage. If people panic now and if it's overburdened in the short term by people failing to listen to good, go- to good advice from, from government and acting rashly, we actually cause more problems. So people need to remain calm, they need to listen to the pronouncements and they need to trust that, like any other storm, this is something that will ride out. I, I think the really difficult thing sometimes is that... Uh in some degree, alarm, not necessarily panic, but alarm can actually be useful in, in, in maintaining or managing some sort of public health crisis. Take, for example, uh, the response when it became clear that smoking does cause cancer. Now, those really graphic, horrible images on the cigarette packages, they are designed to make you panic. They are designed to make you look at that and go, oh, gosh, that could be me. I better stop smoking. For some reason, that takes decades to really take hold. Uh, the problem when you've got something like this is that it's hard to actually manage when the alarm becomes the panic. And I think that's that's really the problem that the World Health Organization is starting to talk about now when they say you know, the misinformation is what's really causing problems. Now, take, for example, this week, uh, Fox News had a town hall with President Trump in Pennsylvania. President Trump sat there mostly unchallenged and spurted all sorts of misinformation and lies about the American government's uh, management or mismanagement of the coronavirus outbreak. Meanwhile, there was a CNN town hall uh, that was hosted by Anderson Cooper. He was surrounded by a bunch of actual health experts, and he said, and I quote, the best way to fight fear is with facts, not hype, not hope, not hunches, facts. History has shown us that a virus spreads farther, faster, when there is fear and confusion. So, you know, okay, so a crisis can be pretty good for business, yes, but I'm actually quite reassured that CNN has found its niche in this, in just remaining calm and spreading facts rather than the hyperbole or lies that uh, a lot of others are doing. Ben Ryland, Marco Sippi and Tom Edwards, thank you all. Go and wash your hands. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Up next, our weekly survey of what, if anything, we have learned. We learned this week, though probably should not have been surprised, that public reactions to a health scare such as the coronavirus COVID-19 cannot always be relied upon for their rigorous logic or mature composure. Panic purchasing of various goods has been reported around the world, but a particular hysteria has descended upon Australia in respect of toilet paper. Supermarket shelves are being cleared of the stuff as fast as it can be stacked, and not always with the decorous after-you-old-chap politess for which Australians are justly renowned. There have been reports of several brawls, at least one brandishing of a knife, and the deployment of a taser by police to resolve an altercation at a supermarket in the New South Wales settlement of Tamworth. But... 
Australia has not yet entirely descended into a Hobbesian free-for-all. Its institutions and citizens are rising magnificently to the occasion. The country's finest journal of record, the Northern Territory News, took a break from its usual agenda of lurid crocodile yarns on Wednesday and helpfully printed a lift-out of several blank pages for readers to do with what they would, or as they must. And the nation's toilet paper mill workers vowed to labour heroically around the clock. Oh, it's flat out, it's flat out, but, uh, you know, we'll do anything for Australia. These times call for desperate measures, so we're we're working around the clock and that's just how it is. It's not easy in there, but we we rock up every day and we do our thing, so, yeah, we'll just keep doing what we got to do. Australians wiping away a patriotic tear at this point, with their sleeves, obviously, there's nothing else left, can also console themselves with the knowledge that, at least as we go to air, this unruliness has not beset their parliament. No such succour is available to our Turkish listeners. For we also learned this week that the legendarily rambunctious lawmakers of Ukraine and Taiwan have a rival for the title of world's most pugnacious parliament. Turkey's Grand National Assembly hosted a spectacular stoush as MPs exchanged views and blows regarding Turkey's intervention in Syria. We learned, however, that even Turkey's quarrelsome parliamentarians and Australia's rapacious toilet paper consumers are models of stolid, stoic pragmatism compared to Venezuela's somehow still incumbent president, Nicolas Maduro. Hugo Chavez's hapless mini-me chose this chaotic and desperate moment in his country's history to urge Venezuelan women to have at least six children each, despite Venezuela's present difficulties feeding the children it has. A parir, pues, a parir, todas las mujeres a tener seis hijos, todas, que crezca la patria, música. And we learned that the burghers of St. Petersburg may have more neighbours than they thought. A new study by the Moscow School of Economics reported that, rather than the 5.4 million people commonly believed resident on the banks of the Neva, the more accurate figure is nearer 7 million. That difference, for perspective, is an entire Nizhny Novgorod, or maybe three Yulianovsks, or about five Slomensks, or as many as ten Neftyugansks. And a big hello to all our listeners in the Kanti-Mansi Autonomous Okrug. How do you lose one and a half million citizens? Here's Mary Dejewski on Wednesday's briefing. The way that the researchers explain it, they say that they've basically been calculating according to totally unrealistic methods, that they're still operating by the figure in the last census, which was a good few years ago, and that they're simply taking the registrations of births and deaths, subtracting the one from the other every year, and giving that as the current total. But they say it's actually much more complicated than that, and this is the reason why there's this huge discrepancy. And we learned that among the few things that Michael Bloomberg's money cannot buy is the presidency of the United States. The umpty billionaire former mayor of New York City abandoned his tilt at the White House after a dismal showing in the Super Tuesday primaries. After spending at least $400 million of his own money on his brief campaign, Bloomberg's only outright Super Tuesday victory was in the caucuses of American Samoa. It would almost certainly have been cheaper to buy American Samoa. 
and we learned as a consequence that the democratic portion of the sprint to become the oldest president of the United States is now pretty much a two-horse affair. Someone somewhere is at some point going to seize upon the advanced ages of Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and make a joke about a two-hearse race, but this monologue has standards, consarnate, and will not be tempted below them by the tawdry allure of so cheap a joke. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, unless COVID-19 delivers us, it is 71 days until the 2020 iteration of the Eurovision Song Contest. The Eurovision season of qualifying and conjecture now goes on longer than Christmas with even worse music. As such, a few of the major contenders have already shown their hands, the thinking being, presumably, that we are numbed into acquiescence by the time the contest occurs, as opposed to being merely appalled by our first exposure on the night. Still with me is Marcus Hippie. Joining us is Monocle's Eurovision desk chief, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Uh, Fernando, what do we? There is already, I understand, a clear favourite. There is. I mean, but but again, don't trust those clear favourites because things could change. It's like presidential primaries, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think you know, Iceland had an amazing entry, indeed. I mean, uh, the name of the band, which is is, is very hard to pronounce, I have to say, uh, <laughs> Andrew. You know, so I really... you would have thought they'd think about that before yeah. entering an international song contest. But I'll, I'll try my best. The band is Dardy Og uh, Gagnamagnu, uh, and the song is called "Think About Things." It's an excellent song. I think we can all agree on that. Perhaps well. a bit, perhaps a bit too cool. That's my only issue. Should, should we hear some of it? Uh, that was the Icelandic entry in Eurovision this year. Marcus, do you want to have a whack at pronouncing that? Given that you're at least. Do you count as Scandinavian from Finland? You kind of do, it's don't Nordic, you? I think. Nordic, it's Nordic. Um, you might have a better shot than the rest of us, given that obviously Finland is a weird language with too many K's in it that nobody else understands. Yes, I can try to pronounce the name of the track. Let's see if I do any better than Fernando. It's it's Dadia Gagnamangnio. I'm not doing it any better. But you know, the reason why I'm here in the studio now is I also wanted to talk about Eurovision music. Finland hasn't chosen its song yet, but we kind of know already which song is going to win because it's 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 been creating a lot of excitement in Finland. It's by Erika Wikman, who was known as a tango singer back in the day. Now she's totally different. Sorry, a Finnish tango singer. Yes, is, is that it. is that a thing? It's a it's a big thing. Tango is a big thing they in, thing in tango. Finland. That I knew. But 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 she's released this song that is expected to win, and it's a tribute to the Italian poor star come politician Cicciolina. The track is called Cicciolina as well. Let's have a listen to that. See, dreadful though that is, uh, Fernando, I will defer to your expertise as the Eurovision desk chief here. That's in with a real shout, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the beat is fantastic. And I think all Europeans know Cicciolina and they have a connection with her because she she's everywhere, basically. She even did a, a soap opera in Brazil at once. So, you know, she's not only a porn star, a politician, uh, an artist, because she did some artwork with Jeff Koons as well. Let's not forget that. I think Italians may feel a bit differently about her because I think us Finns, we kind of find her very amusing and we like 
liked her when she came to visit Finland for business and she went to a parliament and revealed her breast there in the 1980s carrying a teddy bear. We still remember that, but I think my Italian colleague, for example, didn't find her as amusing considering that she had actually grown up in the country where Cicciolina did have some power. Uh, did Cicciolina genuinely have a following in Finland at the time? Is that why this massive song is headlines, happening? Massive headlines, absolutely. It was something about the 1980s. We we rarely got guests like that. And <laughs> yeah, it was something even I remember from my childhood. It was I think it was 1987 when it must have been nine and I was watching television news when she did that famous visit to the parliament. She walked around in Helsinki carrying a teddy bear and she went to the parliament and she as you say, revealed herself. <laughs> I would love to see more of that in 2020. What, people revealing themselves with teddy bears? <laughs> yes, actually. Is is the teddy bear important to this? A teddy bear or, or any other. Um, wh- while we are here, Fernando, in a, a, a fairly transparent uh, bit of, of home crowd umpiring, I, I do want to discuss Australia and our chances, that is to say my country's chances. Th- this whole thing has been shamelessly rigged against us since we deigned to enter. Um, last year, I thought we should have done much better with the... Remember the woman up the broomstick wobbling back She and forth? She was fantastic. Uh, I remember the woman up the broomstick wobbling back and forth. I don't remember the song at all. Uh, what are our chances this year? Seriously, give it to me straight. <sighs> I have to be, to be honest with you, Andrew. I was not a big fan. I don't think it's one of the worst songs, that's for sure. <laughs> But, you know, she's dressed as a clown. I don't know. I didn't fall in love with the song. I mean, there are some smart lyrics here and there. Our entrant is dressed as a clown this year. Yes, but to be honest, that's that's actually nothing for Eurovision. That's that's, that's actually one of the more somber <laughs> kind of entries. Uh, I was not a big fan, but you know we have a clip of it. I want to hear your opinion, guys, because uh, I don't want to be uh, unfair. Shall we have a listen? See, the, my people have their gone, Fernando, for the big windswept ballad, which does win Eurovision from time to time, the big windswept ballad. It does, but I would be surprised if this wins. What do you think, Marcus? Maybe it's a grower. Maybe I have to listen to it seven times if I understand how great it is. Or 17 times. Fernando, what, by the way, just quickly, do you think language matters? Because obviously us Finns are now sending a song, it seems, that is sung in Finnish. Do you think it's... It's it's a better idea to send a, sing, a song that's being sung in English. I think it's quite brave, and and you know you can win songs like at least Portugal. The Portuguese guy won with a, a very quiet ballad sang in Portuguese, and people loved it. Uh, I think thing, it would be lovely to have a Finnish song. Ukraine for the first time they're sending a song in Ukrainian. Uh, so, you know, we I, like that. I'm going to assume, Fernando, that you meant brave there in a, a literal context, <laughs> such as Brazilian people might use it rather than brave in the British meaning of the word, which is, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my <laughs> life. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Marcus Hippie, thank you both very much for joining us. That is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Marcus Hippie. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu. Monocle's House View returns at 9am tomorrow. Tomorrow, that's Saturday UK time, and it's also back at 1800 Monday London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Have a terrific weekend.